Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. When the Ketters family made their gift to WDET, they said, WDET is important to the support of a free press and democracy. So right now, the Ketters family is matching first-time gifts for new members up to $2,000. This is one of the wonderful things about giving here at WDET. We have so many people who not only want to give their own money, but want to make sure that they can match other people's gifts to maximize their contributions to WDET and to all the great local programming that you enjoy here. So if you have never made a gift to WDET, and there are a lot of you I know who listen to this show who have never come forward to me to be donors to WDET, uh, your donation at WDET right now will be doubled. Just go to WDET.org to give, and thank you very much. Up first today, in the last couple of days, reports that the White House has stripped the CDC of their data collection responsibilities have been trickling out of various news and media outlets. Earlier this week, hospitals all over the country received word from the American Hospital Association instructing them to start sending critical information about COVID-19 hospitalizations to a different federal database. So what does this mean? And how does it fit into the ongoing politicization of this pandemic? Here to answer these questions and more is political correspondent for The Washington Post, Philip Bump. Philip, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. So from the start of the pandemic, the CDC has collected data on COVID-19 hospitalizations and information about equipment that's necessary to healthcare workers treating those with the virus. What is happening now with that data? So it, it's, a, it's relatively complicated in a lot of different ways. So there are a number of uh, surveillance systems in particular that the CDC uses in order to try and track uh, what is actually happening on the ground in states. Uh, it started with what it calls the uh, influenza-like illness uh, surveillance system, which tracks when people were showing up at emergency rooms and complaining of flu-like symptoms, uh, which is an existing network that's in place for the government to be able to get a sense of how widespread the flu is in any given year. Eventually, they sort of uh, created a, a parallel system that which tracked COVID-like illnesses to do the same sort of thing. So there are, uh, there's that level of surveillance that happens at the CDC, but there is also this reporting that comes from hospitals uh, up to the federal government in order for the government to present uh, a unified picture of what's actually happening. It's that data uh, that is now going to be uh, moved from the CDC over to, to uh, the Department of Health and Human Services broadly. Um, although I do think uh, that what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is that it's really the state-level data, which has provided a lot of the insight of what's going on. That's that the state-level data is still being collected. And while it certainly is a point of criticism that the federal government has never had a strong, robust, real-time, unified set of data on this, it isn't necessarily the case that our data stream is, is immediately going to change in a way that a lot of people were worried about. So, so what is this private party that will now be in charge of receiving some of this information? And what do we know about that private party? Well, so this is, I mean, again, so the point is that, uh, yeah, so there's going to be this separate organization which is going to be uh, uh, aggregating this data uh, and collecting it. I mean, sort of as we've seen over the course of the Trump administration, we've seen uh, uh, repeated examples of places where 
things have been moved from the public sector to the private sector uh, in a similar sort of way. Uh, there are obviously reasons that one might do that uh, in some occasions. If there is, for example, an existing private sector solution to a problem uh, that the federal government needs to address immediately, they may turn to the private sector. It's, this seems to be a case where uh, potentially that's what happened. There was this uh, company that already did this sort of work, and they're simply deploying it in order to be able to use it. I mean, again, I, I think the important focus here is less on the shift from giving data to the CDC and more on the fact that the federal government has never been good about tracking what's actually been happening on the ground, forcing things like the COVID tracking project, which is sort of an open source uh, attempt to track how many tests are being conducted and how many hospitalizations there are. It's the sort of thing we should be able to rely on federal government for, but which it's never done at any point over the course of this crisis in any capacity. How, how does that compare to how other countries have managed data during this? I mean, there there are right. uh, obviously lots of things that, that I, I think uh, other countries are doing more efficiently or better than we are right now. Is this Is this one of them? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of my view of this is informed. I did a story earlier this week uh, comparing what the outbreak looked like in Canada and Mexico to what it looks like in the United States. And if you go to the government of Mexico's website, they have a very robust website that allows you to dive deep within uh, uh, different states in Mexico and then within municipalities within those states, see the number of cases, see the evolution over time, see a level of data presentation that simply has never existed at the CDC website. Uh, and it's sort of it's sort of surprising, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. We 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 uh, you know constantly pride ourselves in being yeah, a very you know savvy uh, uh, country that you know deals with these you know, sort of things with at the cutting edge of technology, and, and yet we lag behind even our, our neighbors in the south in terms of what it is we're able to present in real time on this stuff. Uh, you know, we've seen not only just the presentation of the data, but obviously the collection of the data in other countries has been much more robust. Uh, south Korea. You've heard multiple times South Korea and the United States got our first cases of uh, the coronavirus at the same time. South Korea very quickly scaled up testing, was able to test and track and figure out where people were and what these outbreaks looked like, and were able to tamp down on the spread of the virus in their country. That's something we weren't able to do. So not only were we uh, not able to present the data about what was happening, we weren't even able to collect the data on what was happening in the way that other countries were. Hmm. Uh- what, what what's at stake here as they make this change? I mean, we're starting to see numbers climb in a lot of parts of the country, right. uh, go out of control, really, in places like Texas and Florida. Here in Michigan, we are in, experiencing at least a small surge again back in the number of cases and deaths. Does this switch have implications for those surges and what we will need to do for, for, for all of this? Or is this a, a more background kind of issue? I would say it's probably generally a more background kind of issue. I do think, though, that it is obviously necessary for the, the government at some level, federal and or state, to have a better grasp of what's actually happening on the ground. I mean, even now, the tests that we're doing are capturing only a percentage of the number of actual cases, the number of actual new infections that are happening. We don't even know what percentage it is that's being captured. Uh, but we are not yet even having a sense in real time of what's happening uh, in terms of the spread of the disease. So from that standpoint, you know, debates over who is collecting this data and, and the scale of that that's being collected are different things. If we can have 
you know, I mean, not not to put too fine a point on it, but if, if the Washington Post's greatest competitor were to come up with an absolutely flawless system for collecting the data, I'm all for it, right? And, you know, the, <laughs> the most important thing is making sure that we are collecting this data and having a sense of what's actually happening, because you're right. I mean, not only is it seemingly out of control, it's literally out of control. We don't know who's got it. We don't know where it's spreading. And that limits our ability to both respond to it and also limits our ability to actually handle the damage from it. I'm talking with Philip Bump, national political correspondent for The Washington Post. And we're talking about the CDC and the politics of the pandemic, things that are changing about the way they collect and report data about COVID-19 that have been decided by the Trump administration. We're also talking about the pandemic itself, the numbers going back up, not just in places like Florida or Texas or California or Arizona, but right here in Michigan where we are experiencing uh, a number of new cases, uh, the high numbers of new cases, the highest numbers, in fact, since uh, several several weeks ago or, or months. Um, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us how you're feeling about the pandemic at this point. Are you concerned that the number of cases that we're beginning to see are rising again here in Michigan? Are you trying to soak up the time at restaurants and beaches and other public places before we might get another mandated stay-at-home order? Are you thinking that that is on the way? Or are you back at work and not too worried about these numbers? Do you think this is maybe just a part of a normal cycle that we will have to get used to? Uh, what's the feeling around where this is all heading in your workplace and in your home? What do you think we will be doing, for instance, in just about a month and a half when school is supposed to reopen? K to 12 schools and colleges. Do you think we're going to get there and that it's going to look anything like what we are used to? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, also, give us a call and tell us what you are thinking about data with regard to COVID-19. Do you think we're getting the kind of data that we need to make good decisions about what should be reopened or what parts of life we are prepared to go back to? Uh, Philip, before we uh, hear from, from listeners, uh, I, I wonder what you make of the national picture uh, that, that we're looking at and the national inaction as compared to other countries, uh, we still are leaving it to individual states and in some cases individual cities, mayors, to make decisions about how to reopen, whether to reopen, and, and how to keep people safe. And it, it seems to me that what, what that's created at this point is kind of a situation of that's analogous to rolling blackouts, right? Uh, we, we have parts of the country where this is really awful and out of control, and then we have other parts of the country that have gotten control of it, at least for now. But, but if, you don't do, if you don't have a uniform approach, can we really get to the point where we have control of this the way other countries do? And is there even the discussion in Washington about more of a national response to just lower the presence of the virus in this country? No, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question, and your analogy of the rolling blackouts is, I think, a good one. Um, 
I mean, it's grim. We're in a grim, grim scenario. I mean, granted that, you know, people aren't dying as rapidly as they did in April. I live in New York, and you know, it was there were times in the spring when all, you heard sirens every every 30 seconds or so. I mean, it was, it, was, it was bleak. And happily, people aren't dying at that rate, but the number of deaths is increasing. The number of cases is spiking. And while you're right that we are sort of relying upon a piecemeal a local elected officials, statewide elected officials, appealing to their own constituencies on what to do. We're seeing how that results in spreads elsewhere. We're seeing how when Texas and Florida, which are massive uh, population centers in the United States, when they have a fairly lax approach, how that helps then power a national surge. You know, I live in New York. Cases are down here now, but I'm very well aware that that is at risk because of what's happening elsewhere in the country. We're obviously not going to shut down the border of New York to other states, in the way that other states wanted to do to New York when we were the epicenter earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but without a national approach, it's hard to see how we're able to do anything and have massive fires erupt in various places, finally cans them down just to see them erupt somewhere else. Uh, it's obviously the case that the President Trump isn't interested in having a national approach. Uh, his his, his uh, way of looking at the pandemic has sort of, since the outset, been just sort of power through the next 24 hours and maybe something will change and it'll go away. And that consistently hasn't happened. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Vera in Dearborn. Vera, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Hi. Um, co- hi. couple of comments. I don't agree uh, that this is a shift to get more information, this, this shift from going away from the CDC. I think it's a, it's a way for him to control the information. Hmm. He's sidelined Dr. Fauci. He's sidelined CDC. Anybody that doesn't agree with him, he has an agenda. He wants to keep those numbers low. He's said it many, many times because it makes him look bad, and it's all about him. And so he wants to keep those numbers low, pretend everything's fine, and then and he can control this private group so he can get the information out there that he wants to get out there. That's what they did in Texas. They didn't like the numbers, so they fired the person that, you know, was doing the database because she wouldn't manipulate them. It's classic, you know. He's a gaslighter. He's, you know, this is what they do. Yeah, Vera, I really, I really do appreciate the the, the call and the, the the perspective there. Philip Bump, is that a good read on the way the president approaches this question and the way that he is making changes to the to the information that we get? So it is unquestionably the case that President Trump doesn't like the numbers being high. He wants them to be lower. I think that if he had a magic wand where he control the numbers that are being released every day, he would use that magic wand and we would not necessarily get a fair representation of what's happening. Absolutely true. I agree with that entirely. It is, however, continues to be the case that the good data we were getting was never coming from the federal government anyway. And so it's not as though we had a robust system at the CDC, which was tracking this data, and that's what everyone was relying on to learn what was happening, and all of a sudden that's being shifted into a dark closet. We never had that good information from the CDC. We were consistently hearing messages from the White House that conflicted with what we were hearing on the ground from states, what was being collected through open source uh, methods of people gathering together data that, that was available publicly. 
those have always been better sources of information. Those have always proven to be more accurate sources of information. So while it may be the case that the federal government does, in part, want to make this change in order to control the information that's going out, they never control the information that's going out in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vera, I really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Charles in Detroit. Charles, welcome to Detroit today. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I'm concerned about the racial disparity uh, data uh, across the country and mm-hmm. specific uh, states. I and mean, Michigan, 13% of the population is African American, yet 40% of the deaths are, I'm sorry, with 13% of the population in the state, yet 40% of the deaths due to COVID. Yep. I wanted to understand the data breakdown across the country for African Americans and COVID and why the data is lacking. Yeah, great question, Charles. And and it's a subject we've talked about a number of times here on the show. The, the disparities here in Michigan are really dramatic. And uh, because, of course, we have uh, large centers, urban centers like Detroit, uh, what that means is that uh, we are experiencing this in the city of Detroit, for instance, really differently than people in other other parts of the state. Uh, but Philip, put that in a in a national context. Uh, the numbers here are twelve percent of the population is African American. Forty some percent of the deaths from COVID have been uh, African Americans. What does that look like nationally? Yes, and nationally, there was a great report by the New York Times a couple of weeks ago where they actually filed a Freedom of Information request uh, for, actually from the CDC, to get the national data that had been aggregated about uh, race and coronavirus. And so we see nationally that same disparity. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it is absolutely the case that uh, Black and Hispanic Americans are vastly overrepresented in coronavirus cases and deaths. Uh, part of that, I mean, there, there are myriad reasons for that, including that, uh, for example, in New York City, uh, uh, the New York City controller did research that essentially showed that black and Hispanics in New York City were, among other things, more likely to hold jobs that were considered uh, ones that were essential and therefore were at work and putting themselves at risk more. There are you know, obviously a lot of systemic issues, a lot of systemic economic and health issues as well, uh, which, which play into this. But yeah, I mean, this is something that we've seen repeatedly nationally, in part, too, because uh, cities tend to be more uh, uh, more diverse in their demographics, and we've seen this hit cities harder. Uh, but there are a lot of reasons and a lot of indications that this is something which has become a much more dramatic problem for people all around the country. Sorry, my dog in the background. <laughs> uh, than uh, we might uh, otherwise have expected. And that's something, too, that we've learned primarily through outside organizations doing research, looking at what parts of the country were affected by this and discovering, hey, this is a problem that then rises to the attention of the federal government. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was the other part of Charles's point is that there isn't a whole lot of federal effort to keep track of this data. It's outside institutions and organizations really pressuring them to release this data. And that, and that gets back to this question of the national approach to all of this and, and, and how odd it is given, uh, given how serious the, the outbreak has been. Um, again, Charles, appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, what's on your mind? Hello, hello. Um, well, uh, I was uh, catching up on the news yesterday, and, and Kaylee McAdaney, uh clearly said uh, 
in her press briefing that she didn't want science to get in the way of schools opening. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, uh, with the manipulation of the data now, what other bad things, what malicious things can this administration um, do <laughs> over the next four months um, that yeah. would just put us in a tailspin? Uh, a total contradiction of common sense. Yeah, t- Tim, great question. Uh, Philip Bump, I think this gets to the, the the central tension here, which is that if you push to reopen and don't assure that people are safe, if you say we don't want to get science in the way of reopening schools, but then schools open and people get sick in large numbers, you are defeating the very purpose that the Trump administration says it's trying to achieve, which is to get us back to normal. Is there an awareness when someone like the, the, the White House press secretary says what she said yesterday that there is this incredible contradiction, not just from an intellectual standpoint, but from a practical one, that you can't get to where they want us to go if people are going to be sick in such large numbers? No, I mean, this, this is the fundamental tension that the administration has been having. I, I do think it's worth pointing out that, that McEnany's comments were wrong, but not for the reason that, that was just presented. She did say that, but she then said that the science actually supported reopening schools. That's mm. the problem that, that was wrong. The science mm. doesn't necessarily support that. It's unclear what the effects of reopening schools will be. But President Trump has consistently put pressure on the administration to try and, again, as I said earlier, hope that within 24 hours somehow all of this just magically disappears and that we need to just get the economy going and just need to get kids back in school, which, of course, also will help the economy get going because people can get back to work once kids are back in school. He just wants to sort of move forward as though everything is just going to resolve itself. We tried this in May, and the result is what we're seeing today with this giant spike in cases. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, President Trump insists uh, that we can just sort of make changes now and everything will work out, even though we've already seen that it won't. And he doesn't have people. He's got folks like Anthony Fauci in the administration who are saying, hey, this isn't going to work. But at the end of the day, he's the president. And I will point out, too, that, you know, that the caller just said four months, Donald Trump's president for the next six months until January. Um, so there's a lot that can happen yes. uh, over the span of that time. Yes. Okay, Philip Bump, uh, national political correspondent for The Washington Post. Always great to catch up with you. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, sir. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, journalist and friend of the show, Shana Roth, has a new book out about some of the most iconic cold cases in modern America. She is going to join me next to talk about the book and about America's obsession with true crime. Stay with us on Detroit Today. We'll be right back. 